Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm blessed and honored to be in dialogue with Susanna Abusik. She received an MA from UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles, and did research in Poland and Israel during that time. At the present time, Susanna is an independent speaker talking to the community at large, including libraries, museums, churches, synagogues, and book clubs. We are here today to discuss her new book, Memory is Our Home, Loss and Remembering, Three Generations in Poland and Russia, 1917 to the 1960s, published in Stuttgart by Ibdem Verlag, 2022. Susanna, it's a sincere blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. And I just want you to know that it's um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Speak. Thank you. It's my honor as well. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired you to write this book? Um, so I grew up in communist Poland after the war. And throughout my childhood, my mother... Uh, talk nonstop about what happened to her. Uh, uh, I, um, my, my memories of, of my mother is her running away from Poland, her city being on fire, her, uh, her uh, surviving throughout Soviet Russia. And those are the stories that stayed with me as a child. But what I had trouble understanding was um, how her family that she described in detail, how they could just uh, vanish, how they could disappear. So as a child, I thought that she was making all of that up. And in order to feel safe, I embraced the stories about her surviving in Russia because this is where she was strong and uh, and beautiful and this is where she survived. So, um, and I never allowed myself to uh, see her hungry, uh, be sick with malaria or be arrested by the NKVD. But it was later when I, um, that was in uh, City College of New York when my path crossed with Ellie Wiesel that I finally um, realized that my mother's stories were real and, and that the families that she described to me in my childhood were real, real people. And this is when I realized that the reason my mother talked was she was preparing me to be the next generation of memory keepers. What is the primary message of your book what story does your book tell what are the primary themes in this book so the primary story is well what i learned from um from ellie wiesel was that survivor stories must never be forgotten that uh their lives are important and you know his famous quote is to forget the dead is would would be the same as to kill them second time around. But um, it, it is just as important to, um, to talk about the community from before the Holocaust. 
the community that vanished never to recover. And this is what my book is about. My book is about the community, the people, the family, the vibrant uh, life from before the Holocaust. Poland was a vibrant community with a vibrant life. It was also called, actually, um, Warsaw was called the Paris of the North. So my mother captures all that. She captures the triumphs. She captures the... uh, uh, the tribulations, the economy, politics, uh, culture, um, art, uh, theater, uh, the religion, she captures all that, uh, especially during the interwar uh, period. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Uh, I guess the most important for people to to know is that without memory, there is no history, and that each generation um, inherits history from the generation before. And um, it tells us how we behave and how we change. And with my book, I honor Ellie Wiesel, I honor history, And especially, I honor my mother's determination to give a voice to the generation or her generation, really, that was brutally murdered. In what ways did you grow through the process of writing and preparing this book? In what ways was it therapeutic for you? Um, I think I understood, you know, so as a child, I, I didn't understand any of that, but I think what I grew in is that I understood survivor's trauma uh, and that it affected all survivors, whether they survived in, uh, in camps or survived in hiding or survived throughout Soviet Russia. I think they pretty much um, uh, barely survived. They were more dead than alive. And they also couldn't understand how such thing was allowed to happen in a civilized world. This was my main, this was basically my main takeaway. Can you tell us about your father's craving for news from Radio Free Europe? Um, Yeah, so I was very young when we're, um, when I remember him daily, this was on a daily basis. He uh, would, um, um, sit in front of the radio and turn the the knob trying to catch the waves that um, would uh, bring the radio free europe and those were broadcasted in many different languages but they were they would also be in polish and this was illegal first of all this was also uh the uh the waves the radio waves would, would be jammed so it was very hard to to get um, to get that broadcast uh, to be heard, um, I didn't quite understand what we were doing, but I knew that it had some kind of an impact on our life. What does your book teach us about World War II as it impacted Uzbekistan? Can you comment on the ways by which Uzbekistan was impacted by the Holocaust? Well. Well, in Uzbekistan, I know that um, they were surviving, uh, you know, as horrible as the conditions in Uzbekistan were, and they were horrible in terms of 
hunger, disease, uh, intimidation. But when in terms of Jews surviving in Uzbekistan, they survived uh, the fire that engulfed them in Europe. So in Uzbekistan, they were um, safe, if you will, uh, from from Nazi and right. and those uh, who supported the Nazi ideology. Uh, and um, in terms of the numbers, the greatest number of Jews survived Stalin's Russia. This is just a fact. In what ways is the story told in this book typical or atypical of other Jewish refugees in Uzbekistan? Um. In what way it is typical? Well, um, I'm not sure um, in what way it is typical. It is typical that they all, um, you know, they all suffered. There's no question about it. The people in in Russia under Stalin, they all suffered. At this time, I, I don't know, is, is that what you're trying to get at? In, in Russia, if you criticized um, Stalin, or Russia, you were the enemy of Russia. So at this time, Stalin did not single out uh, Jews, but if you criticize him or Russia, you were the enemy. So, so this, you know, Stalin's anti-Semitism came out after the war. I, I'm not sure if I'm if if this yes. is what you had in mind. Sure. Yeah. What was life like for you growing up in communist Poland? Um, well, that's interesting. Um, under communism, to let's start with the simple answer. The simple answer is that um, under communism, uh, anti-Semitism never went away the way it was supposed to. That's that's just to start with. Our lives were, when I compare our life to uh, after the war, to my mother's, uh, you know, and I talk about usually say my mother because my mother was the one who talked nonstop, and we'll talk about it later. And my father uh, was silent. So when I compare my mother's life uh, during the war to our life, uh, to our life um, after the war. There was uh, very little difference. Our life was um, a very, um, um, I don't know how to say it, but um, our conditions, the economic conditions were not any different uh, from the time when they were surviving war in Russia. The utopia of surplus under uh, that socialism promise never happened. That's number one. The opposite actually did. Uh, everyone stood in long lines um, uh, for basic needs. I'm not talking about, um, you know, special items, but we're talking about the basic needs that one uh, had to survive, uh, the basic food needs that one needed to survive by. Um, and our lives were very. Um, it was it was a very scary time, I think, for my parents, and that also um, the the children, as young as they were, we, we felt that. On page 
246, you note that in Uzbekistan, you never knew about Hitler's final solution for the Jewish population of Europe. How did you and your mother come to learn about the Holocaust? Well, so for my mother, so my mother read Mein Kampf. So she knew uh, that Hitler had evil intentions for the Jews. But at the same time, she never imagined that a Holocaust was going to be unleashed on the Jewish people. She had no idea what the Holocaust even was going to be. And especially in Uzbekistan, she was totally um, isolated from any information. Um, uh, uh, So uh, I'm trying to think of the word, you know, gossip and gossip came and went, uh, we're talking about Uzbekistan. So gossip came and went like wildfire. So she didn't know what truth and what, um, what, what truth and what uh, falsehood was. So what, when, she, when she came to Warsaw, uh, which was actually one year after the war had ended, now, this is another interesting story. The Russian government uh, finally let this, um, the survivors, or at that time they were called refugees, finally allowed them to go back to Poland almost a year later after the war had ended. When she finally came back to Poland, this is when she saw what um, what happened to uh to Warsaw, and specifically to um, her Jewish community, she came to a one huge uh, Jewish graveyard. Not one member of her family was among the living. Now, as for me, um, under communism, uh, I grew up not knowing about the Holocaust, only from what my mother would tell me. So. Even um, those, uh, this is under communism, and this is until the late 1980s. Those who helped Jews uh, survive in Poland, they could not talk about it for decades. So how I found out was only from my mother. And of course, all my research then happened here in, you know, in America. You refer to... The massacre of Odessa's Jews by Romanian troops and German Einsatzgruppe during 1941 and 1942. What specifically happened? Can you tell us more about this? Well, the, you know, the only thing that I really at, at that time that wow. I knew was that it wasn't just that specific one. I, I think I did a little bit more research with um, the French priest uh, who uncovered. Uh, the death squads and the um, the of this is happening from 1941 and throughout the war where there's uh, almost 1.5 million Jews murdered uh, in Eastern Europe and this is with the cooperation of the Lithuanians, the uh, Ukrainians, and. Uh, and there's a few examples that I state, including um, in um, including the one you just mentioned. Uh, now, what happened was that my 
mother's sister, uh, Paula, married a gentleman in Uzbekistan from Odessa. And it's he somehow, I don't know the details of how he was able to escape, but he left behind a wife and two children, and they were murdered uh, in Odessa. This is... Um, you know this now this happened um this happened when uh when hitler attacked russia after hitler attacked russia how did life change for you after world war ii after world war ii well my parents were my parents first of all my parents came to after almost a year after um the war had ended they were forced to they could not come back to Warsaw or to Woods. They were forced to settle in south uh, western part of Poland, which was uh, Germany before. And um, communism at that time was already established. Uh, a few things happened. Um, my father could not return to Woods, his city, where he actually... Uh, his parents had property there. Uh, that's another very long story in that he he would return there uh, throughout his life. Uh, he would return, try to regain his father's property. But because um, communism took over all the uh, private businesses and private properties, he was never able to regain that. So they settled in... Um, in southwestern part of Poland. And um, my father was um, sick and my mother could not find a job because she would not become a, she refused to join the communist party. So our lives were um, very difficult. What, if anything, is specifically Jewish about your story? In your opinion, what, if anything, would you have experience differently if you belonged to a different minority within the USSR? For example, if you were Armenian, what would be different about your story than if you were Jewish? Well, I think um, it's not just in the USSR, but I think uh, what makes, I think it what makes the Holocaust unique. It makes, it was rationally organized it used modern technology on an industrial scale with a horrific human brutality uh, as the civilized uh, world watch. Uh, it, you know, so this is not just in, in um, I think that's beyond just looking at Russia. Uh, the death camps uh, and labor camps were spread out throughout, throughout Europe, connected by major rail lines. And human slaughter was mechanized. Poison gas was used. Uh, ovens were used to um, get rid of the bodies. And the most important thing, records were kept. So this was a mass slaughter of Jews because they were Jews. Now, if you 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 want to know about the Armenian genocide, you know, as it was horrible. There was somewhat um, over a million people. Um, uh, were murdered, but it was a little different. It, it, and I think this is what this is. I'm quoting historians here. 
um, the, most of the population died from hunger, thirst, you know, exposure to elements along the road because this was a movement of population uh, from one, one area to the other. Um, yeah, guns were used, uh, but the modern technology on an industrial scale was not used to kill people. So I, I guess this is how I would explain. How does your book advance our understanding of Jewish life under Stalin? Well, during the war, Stalin did not single out and villainize Jews. That's anyone who criticized him or Russia was the enemy of, uh, of Soviet Russia. But Stalin's anti-Semitism came out after World War II. And uh, Stalin's slave labor camps, the gulags, were of industrial scale. There's no question about that. He murdered his own people to stay in power. Um, the thing is, though, that both Christians and Jews in, have embraced the ideology of communism. But the interesting part for me is that um, but Jews are always singled out and demonized for uh, for choosing communism. Um, so, and also one has to keep in mind that to be a communist, uh, you have to give up religion because communism is religion. So even though um, if, you, if you are Jewish, you cannot subscribe to your Judaism and be a communism. You have to give up one. Are there any examples of epiphanies or breakthroughs that you experienced while writing this book that you feel comfortable sharing? What are some new realizations about the events depicted here that you feel comfortable to tell us about? What new gleanings are conveyed are conveyed that you realized during the process of recollecting on these events? And can you share some of those insights that you came to while reviewing your life in hindsight? I, I think that for me, the, the, the most important thing uh, was understanding of Zionism and Bund, mm -hmm. the ideologies of Zionism and Bund. And um, just, you know, researching those two ideologies and, uh, you know, the reason they came about, uh, they came about as a response to state. Now, this is state-sponsored anti-Semitic violence, discrimination, pogroms. And in Russia, pogroms mean to destroy. And But each, that's the, that's the most interesting uh, thing for me, is that each took a different path and also competed for Jewish recognition. Most Polish Jews were Bundists. Bund was legal. That's another important thing is, and they were not communists. They actually saw communists as invaders. Now, communism was illegal in Poland. They wanted to overthrow the government, whereas Bund wanted all Bund wanted was to improve the living conditions for all workers, not just Jewish workers, all workers. But Bund wanted to preserve their Jewish identity in Europe. Um, and uh, so, you know, at that time, you have to remember, workers had no protection, meaning that if you got hired, the next day you could be uh, dismissed from work. 
Uh, also children uh, worked at that time as young as nine and Boone tried to, um, to, to get rid of uh, or, or to to protect children, they wanted children uh, not to be working. They also uh, illiteracy was high, and one of the thing was that children were working. So Bund um, Bund fought for the right things, and they wanted to um, and they wanted to to protect the most vulnerable in in the community. But they also thought that they were, that they saw the world through, through a different set of eyes than that of their parents. But they also mistakenly believed that Jews were safe in Europe. My mother and her family, they were Buddhists. So on the other hand, Zionism liberated the native Jews who lived as Dini's after the Romans and Jewish, Jewish freedom, and also world Jews. And some 5% of Polish, um, of Polish Jews left Poland uh, starting after World War I, they left for Palestine. Um, so for me, um, the forsaking of Europe's Jews um, was the focus studied by many historians. And this is, I would like to maybe talk a little bit about that. So there was no Israel. Jews were just simply people scattered throughout Europe in many countries, right? So allies would not bomb Auschwitz. Their goal was simply to uh, a victory over Nazism. Rescuing Jews was not important. But when the Polish underground army asked England and America for assistance, the response was a yes. Even knowing that 90% of the surplus will end up in German hands. So historians see this as a political calculation. Why uh, rescuing the Jews was a no. This, I'm talking about rescuing the Jews in Auschwitz or, or putting an end to, to Auschwitz was a no but rescuing the Poles was a yes. So Poland was a country, was a political uh, unit, and Jews were nobody. They had no political power whatsoever. So those are some of the things that really affected me when I was doing research. Can you tell us about the impact on your family of the Kels pogrom of 1946? So the Kels pogrom. Um, so this happened uh, in South Eastern Poland, and my mother was in southwestern Poland. So this happened when my mother just got to Poland. She knew about it. Um, so uh, there is a great documentary, a movie, a documentary movie that was made in um, 19, um, I'll think of it. I, it was early in 19. I'll think of it. It's called uh, Long Way Home, A Long Way Home. So Polish Jewish survivors were actually not welcome back to Poland. Many people, now, I'm, now look, I'm not saying everybody. I'm saying a segment of the Polish population was shocked that they survived, that they were returning. They were claiming their homes and businesses. For them, Hitler did not finish the job. So um, the 
1945 to 1946, the number of Jewish survivors that were killed is some, somewhere between 500 to 1,500. So this was a revival of anti-Semitism, and this is documented. The film was 1997. Uh, it's a great documentary film. So the facts on the ground where that so this is before I was born this is before my sister was born but you know enough it affected them because because they uh they were scared they they, they were scared uh and looking always over their shoulder so it started in in July I think it started in July 1946 where an eight this is an eight-year-old boy who uh, didn't come back home at night. I think he stayed with with a friend or something. He returned home the next day. But immediately a rumor started that uh, the Jews uh, were keeping him uh, in a basement for a religious sacrifice. And the violent mob took control. Um, so this was a home that the um, survivors were staying at. Because you know they they have no place to go. How it ended? I think forty survivors were killed. Their bodies were mutilated, and another forty were left in critical condition. This was done by ordinary people and police. So, um, you know, and my parents knew about it. So it left them absolutely scared and uh and very vulnerable because if it happened over there it could happen could happen anywhere what does your story teach us about internal displacement what is your story's contribution to refugee studies well it, this is my view i feel that we have a selective take as to who we call displaced people in the um southwestern part of poland which was Germany uh, before the war, where my parents were forced to live. Now, remember, I'm really emphasizing the word forced. Uh, and they they displaced some between 12 to 16 million Germans. Those people were never called displaced. At the same time, after Israel won the war of 1948, Jews were blamed, and to this day they are, for defending themselves from the attack of six countries, the reestablishment of Israel, and that Jews fought back and uh, won, um, ended in displaying some 650,000 Arabs uh, who became the refugees in forever. And the fact that the Arab leaders told the Arabs to, to flee and return when all the Jews are killed doesn't matter. And, um, and also no other displaced people from World War I or World War II or other man-made um, political crises are ever um, designed as refugees. Um, you know, so I don't know. To me, this is a problematic um, area. To put it mildly. You end this book with the following quotation from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail right. of April 16, 1963. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. 
This is on page 259. Why did right. you select why did you select this specific quotation to end your book with? Well, I I chose this quote, but but actually it, it had to do more with the fact that um I saw the Freedom Riders exhibit in Los Angeles, California at the Spurbo. This was a uh, civil rights protesters who rode the interstate buses into the segregated southern states that was in the early 1960s. This was to challenge the uh, the fact that the southern states were not enforcing the Supreme Court decision that ruled that segregation uh, uh, of was was unconstitutional. So what caught my attention was the photographs. Uh, so this was mostly an exhibit of photographs of the white and the right uh, uh, civil rights protesters. Uh, and what caught my attention was their bio. Uh, this was a little placket next to their photographs. And especially of the white uh, protesters. What it showed and, and it revealed to me is that the white protesters were either Holocaust survivors or their children. And so why, I asked myself. And to me, this was very simple. They understood what it's like to lose freedom, civil rights, liberties, possessions. They were the first to stand with the Black community. What is your book's contribution to the study of women's experiences during the Holocaust? Well, the women were the first to um, to feel the burden. Um, they had to engage in the buying and the selling. You know, this is so. This is right after uh, the Nazis enter Warsaw. That's after the month of bombing stops, and. Um, they were um, they were the first to uh, to secure the food for the family, stand in the long lines, along with all the other chores that they had to do that they did before, care for the children, um, all the house chores. From the very beginning of Nazi invasion, it became very dangerous for the men to go outside. Uh, Jewish schools were closed. Jewish own properties was being confiscated, um, and Jewish men were being taken uh, to forced labor uh, camps. Um, they were never coming back. That they knew. Information was getting through to Warsaw that they were beaten, starved, uh, forced them to, to work under unimaginable conditions. Uh, so my mother eyewitnesses this. Uh, she sees German uh, soldiers breaking down uh, Jewish businesses, going inside and emptying whatever was there, loading everything into trucks, and all that was being taken to Germany. Um, so at the same time, uh, the pre-war Jewish organizations were dissolved, and uh, by October 1940, uh, the Jews were forced to to live in, in you know in the ghetto that was sealed off from the rest of the city, and um, so people people started running away, and at first or mostly it was men running away, 
uh, at that time, they still, um, sorry, my earphones are giving me issues. So at first it was the jerk, uh, it was the, it was the men running away because there was this, this notion that the great German civilization would never hurt uh, women and children. Uh, and the fleeing men never imagined the cruel fate that awaited the families they were leaving behind. So there is this, uh, the number is that out of the 1.5 million children who died, 1.2 million were Jewish children. What was the Kahila organization? So the Kahila was the, um, um, it's a, a charitable organization. It was a support system that served the Jews after World War, after the Great War, after war, the First War. It existed in every city and town. Um, and that was uh, dissolved uh, by October, right, I mean, right away, October 1939, and replaced by Judenrat. Um, under uh, in Warsaw, uh, Adam Chernyakov was uh, in charge, and in um, in Łódź it was Chaim Rumkowski. But the Kihila organization was very well established and trusted by the community. And this, in fact, because it was so well established and was so helpful to to the Jewish community, that in the end. This actually helped the Nazis the most because people um, trusted uh, the the organization before that they thought that they were they could also trust the Juden rat. Um, of course, um, they didn't know that they had no choices, or they you know it was hard to to believe that what was what was happening. Um, but I also would like to mention another, um, uh, which I talk about in the book, that after the Great War, help also came from America. So America set up soup kitchens and uh, set up orphanages. And um, my mother writes how um, before going to work, every morning her oldest brother would take her so she could get a cup of milk and a piece of bread from one of those soup kitchens. And America also opened orphanages. And my mother writes how, how lucky she was that their mother, my grandmother, would never consider sending any of, of them to one of those orphanages. Um, Education. Education is how I think um, the Jewish community survived. So my uh, grandmother, uh, she, when she married, she was already a motherless child or, well, a young woman, I should say. Um, but she believed in education so much that she wanted to... Uh, she wanted desperately to educate the two youngest children. Um, and although there was in 1924, 1924, there was no room for them in school uh, because, you know, after the Great War, everything was so destroyed and there was an overwhelming number. The school was interrupted and there was an overwhelming number of 
children now ready to be educated and, and those who, who were left out from the education. So um, it's a long story how my mother uh, had scraped, my grandmother scraped enough money to, to send the youngest, uh, uh, the older brother to the third grade. She paid a, a loose money for the private school, but my mother, she didn't have enough money to send my mother, but my mother homeschooled herself for um, for a whole year. And the next year, she actually climbed through an open window to register herself to school. And um, there is another little um, interesting tidbit that I would like to mention if people are listening. And this is part of history, and it's called Class of 1926. I call it a love letter to America. This is in 1926, um, uh, this is uh, 20% of the Polish population. And this was officials and students from elementary through university and teachers signed what became 111 books. This is a thank you letter to America for helping them uh, on, on America's 150th birthday, for helping them survive after World War I. This also became a document of uh, of those who um, of those Jewish students who would be murdered in fifteen years from this time. Can you tell us about your grandfather Pinkus Talasovic and your father Gerson Talasovic? Okay, so Pinkus, um, so Pinkus would be my grandfather, and uh, Gerson would be my great-grandfather. So let's start with Gerson because, uh, well, he's older, he's the older one. So he was a very well-respected rabbi. He had nine children and Pincus was one of his children. He would be my grandfather. Uh, um, Well, after, I will have to say that after, is my grandfather died. Uh, he abandoned the family. He, yeah, he did not acknowledge them. And this was an extremely, um, um, how should I say, a sore point for my mother. She would always talk about it with tears in her eyes uh, that he did that to them. But um, the interesting thing is with uh, he had nine children, uh, Gerson, but not one of them followed in his religious uh, footsteps. But I would like to talk about one of the children. Uh, so I know very little about most of them, a little bit about Gerson. I would like to bring uh, to light uh, his youngest son, Ludwig. As a very young child, now in our family, only three um, venture out of, out of Poland. Ludwig is one of them. I'd like to pay respect to him, and I'll, you'll see why. He was very young, and somehow, on his own, he left Poland. We find him in, um, in, nine, in 1914, we find him, so that's right before World War I breaks out, we find him uh, from London arriving in America. And then when war, 
War II breaks out, he joins uh, the army uh, and uh, he is wounded and he spends his life in a, in a veterans hospital on Long Island. Um, somehow my, the only surviving um, uh, other, other relative, my mother's mother finds him and that's how we find him. And she always writes, she, she visits with him and she, so she keeps uh, us informed about him. And as a child in Poland, I was always so proud of him. And I always would have those conversations with him. And I almost got to meet him, but he died before we came to America. But I just want you to know that he was among 600,000 Jewish Americans who fought Nazism. Can you tell us about your grandmother, Bina, Bina Simengaus? Right. So Bina and Pincus. So Bina and Pincus um, were the couple of my mother's uh, parents. Those are my mother's parents. So Pincus, let, let me just say a little bit about Pincus. So he and my mother's mother, so they chose each other and uh, they get married. Uh, but my grandfather, Pincus, uh, he dies when he's 36 old and my mother is one year old. And what killed him at age 36 was a simple ear infection. So before that, he had two jobs to support the family of six children. He was a foreman in a small clothing factory, and he um, had a pharmacy job. Um, the only thing my mother knows about him is what her older siblings told her, is that he was a very loving father who worked very hard to support uh, his family. There's no photographs of him. And the oldest boy at age 12 takes over father's job in the factory. And the following year, the two twin girls um, go to work. And like I said before, during this period of history, um, children from poor families as young as nine or occasionally even younger go to work. And, um, and that's how they support the family. So my grandmother, um, she, um, after the death of her husband, managed with um, six young children in a city that was ravaged by illnesses, such as uh, tuberculosis was very widespread, typhus, dysentery, and to help uh, to pay the rent, my grandmother rented the kitchen to a family, and with time, there were five people living in their kitchen. Wow. Yeah. How does your book describe the weather in Warsaw? So my mother writes that, that the winters were very cold. And um, my mother, as a child, had no shoes. So in the winter, she could not go outside. She would spend the whole day um, working on the frosting, the snow window in the room. 
so that she could at least see whatever she could see on the outside. And that also could not afford to, to burn coal with the exception of twice a week on a, I think she said usually on Tuesday and always on Shabbat on Friday. And um, in the summer, they would uh, get like a slab of, um, of ice and to try to keep the perishable items from spoiling. And she wrote how the month of May was the most, the loveliest month of all. The smell of lilac was in the air everywhere. Um, maybe here would be a good time to, to say a little something. Cause so, so my mother's book is filled with uh, her family, extended family, her aunts and uncles, her and but I would like to say a little something about maybe the the brothers and sisters to bring them back to life a little bit. Sure. Uh, so the oldest one was Adek, and at age twelve he becomes the um, man of the family. Uh, he is uh, he had a beautiful heart. My mother said that no matter what he touched, he could do anything, and he took care of the family. Uh, with, without you know there was not a uh he was unselfish the twin girls paula and sala were next um paula took care of the house and sala um um my mother said she had the most beautiful voice she had a very hard life uh then eventually as they grew older so the, the siblings stayed all together eventually um uh, Adek and Sala and Anja was next. They did get married. And um, and I think the most um, uh, uh, what troublesome, I guess, thing is that when they married um, was already the mid-1930s. Um, so when they had children, they, they their children were very young. And uh, and that that was an, a a problem because they decided to stay in Warsaw and 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 weather the the war this way. If their children were older, maybe they like teenagers or older, maybe they would have survived better. But they had very young children. Alex's little daughter was five. Um, Salas had two boys, five and three. Anja had a, a, a son who was three and a newborn daughter who was just a few months old. Um, Anja was married to, a, so Sala was married to a, a young man who couldn't find a job for, for a few years and they had, they suffered immensely. Eventually, um, they they got a loan from a cousin and they opened um, a barber shop that also became a, a salon for, for ladies and and they they all of a sudden blossomed. Um, Anja was married to a, a young man who was a printer for one of the Yiddish uh, newspapers and they they loved each other very much. They uh, they had a they didn't make much money they but they had a good life. And Sevek, who was closest to my mother, um, they really loved, my mother and Sevek loved each other very much. Um, and she brings all of them to life and, and really describes uh, them in detail. 
And this is the only thing I have about them. I have um, no photographs about from any of them. My mother also talks about um, the boyfriends. She dated very many boys. And um, she also talks about how, and this is kind of interesting for me, she talks about how nothing ever came of it. Now, she, her life from age 14, so she was allowed to go to school until the age 14. Um, what happened was that their mother got ill when my mother was 10. She lives, uh, she had a stroke and she lives in a state of vegetation for four years. So the siblings plunge into poverty for the next four years, taking care of her at home. And her mother, my grandmother dies when my mother is 14. And then my mother's education stops at age 14. From age 14 until like 17, my mother's life is uh, miserable. She writes about it in detail. And then she finally just, you know, um, gains her independence. Um, she starts dating and uh, she describes the different relationships. And But she feels that nothing ever became of um, those relationships because there was no, there was not a parent at home to talk to the boy's parents, if you will. Uh, to to make arrangements that her siblings did not step into that role. They were busy with their own lives by then. But in the end, um, it really saved her life because um, being single without children at age 21, she was free to run. What new insights are conveyed in this book regarding Josef Pilsudski? Can you describe his legacy as you perceive it? Okay, the most important thing I would say about Pilsudski is that he believed in equal rights for all Polish citizens. So after World War I, one third of Polish citizens were minorities. This included Jews, Lithuanians, Ukrainians, Belarusians. The Versailles Treaty um, uh, the Second Polish Republic is born, uh, and the borders change uh, drastically for Poland as the borders of most of Europe. And this is how 3.3 million Jews are now Polish citizens. Um, because uh, over a million Jews lived in the East. Um, so let me back uh, backtrack a little bit. Um, Poland lost, Poland stopped being Poland uh, for 123 years. Um, Russia, Prussia, which is Germany, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire divide Poland among themselves. That's how Poland stops existing. So World War I um, ends, and the Versailles Treaty gives Poland back her independence, but at the same time, the borders change. And um, and um, over a million people lived uh, in the eastern part, part of Poland. So that's why now Poland gains 3.3 uh, million Jews. And for um, Pilsudski, he believed that um, minorities can be... Uh, 
can be Poland's strength. But um, as Pilsudski dies in, he dies in 1935, and at the same time, uh, we have the uh, the depression. Uh, what is happening is that life for Jews in Poland is on the decline. That is, uh, that is, um, oh, how should I say that? Uh, the way people start feeling about Jews is is on the decline. And um, now the thing is that Poland is an agricultural community, not in industrial community so it took longer for Poland to recover uh, the only industrial uh, industry that Poland had at that time was textile and coal uh, and this is why um, the Endetia which was the movement uh, against Piłsudski was able to gain in strength what was the Endetia movement what was its historical legacy who was well, they, uh, so Roman Dmowski? Yes, uh, and his party. that was going to be my next question. Who was yeah. Roman Dmowski and <laughs> so why is he notorious? Were... Can you comment on his yes. legacy and no- notoriety in relation to the Endesia movement? Yeah, so they were against Pilsudski his entire career. Okay, so they blame. Uh, they blame Poland's economic problems on Jews. So that's like that's. That was their their um, uh, shtick, <laughs> if you will. And after Pilsudski's death, they became even more radical. So they called for Jews to leave Poland. Universities established better uh, ghetto benches to separate Jewish students from Polish students. So what happened is that uh, Jews, Jewish students started to uh, drop out from universities. Um, boycott of Jewish shops uh, was called for and violence escalated. And actually, um, this is exactly what happened to my mother's brother, Sevek. He and his friends were uh, walking in the Saski Garden. In um, Saski Garden would be the equivalent of like a central park in New York and they were violently attacked. Sevek came home with uh, badly beaten, and especially what was uh, the most, uh, 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 for my mother, the way she describes it, the worst was his hands. Um, At that time, Sevek, so Sevek, uh, his education stopped at age 13, I think 13, right? And so he became a he became a tanner. He worked with leather, but um, because at age 17 he was diagnosed with a weak heart, so he had to change. Um, he had to do something that was not as strenuous. He became a ladies' purse designer, and he was really good at it too. So what happened was his hands were cut and and bleeding so he couldn't work for months after that um so um that was the first time that my family experienced a violent attack by uh by the 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 fascist the the polish fascists and so roman dmowski 
let's talk a little bit about him. He was he aligned himself with fascists. He was what? Why wasn't he so dangerous? So he was well respected. He was accomplished. He was openly anti-Semitic. He he did not hide hide it. He was. What made him so dangerous is that he was affluent. He was very well educated. He spoke many languages. He he had, I, I believe, a doctorate in biology. He traveled widely. So it wasn't that he was, um, uh, I don't know, that it wasn't that he was a bigot or anything. But specifically, he hated Jews, he hated uh, Jewish religion, and he hated the Jewish race. Um, and he he tapped into the centuries-old um, anti-Semitism. He blamed Jews for all of Poland's problems. You know, this is exactly what Hitler did, right? Uh, uh, in, now, in his writings and his speeches, he he says that those were what was he wrote and what was he the things he was saying uh, that Jews Jewish race is harmful to Polish life. Um, he also would say, "My religion came from uh, Jesus Christ, who was murdered by the Jews," and he accused Jews of being Poland's worst. Now, um, this is, uh, you know, I would like to also say something that I left Poland at the end of 1960s, and uh, it wasn't until I came to America that I learned that Jesus was a Jew, his disciples were Jewish, and that at that time, uh, the land of Israel was occupied by Romans, and that Jesus was crucified for being a political agitator. I mean, this is a whole long story. We're not going to talk about it now. But um, in Poland, this is all I knew, that Jesus was murdered by the Jews. So that's how long this um, this centuries-old blame uh, went on. Now, after Piłsudski's death, um, the Endetsia's principles were being incorporated into the uh, government's politics. What new insights regarding Chaim Rumkowski does your book convey? Well, this is, uh, yeah, I'm still on the fence with him. I don't, you know, but we can explore that. This is, a, it's a, he's a difficult character for me. One thing I would like to say is do not judge your fellow until you stand in his shoes. So let's talk about Wuj as the area of the Wuj and Basenti and, and him. So he, I think he was forced to make choices. So what did he do? He gave up individual Jews, the young and the old. I believe I am not 100% sure that he tried to save the Wuj ghetto. This was the largest working ghetto. Um, was he good or evil? Did he think he could uh, buy time and outsmart the Germans? Uh, like, uh, um, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. So the Wuj in vicinity, this was the oldest thriving textile center of Poland. 
uh, and you know this this was part of the wood ghetto they were doing. Um, the law that prevailed in the temporary ghettos was that of a jungle, the strongest prevailed. Uh, the lessons, though, for me was that the Jews were dead to the world, and the humanity did not care if Jews uh, were exterminated or not. Uh, all I know is that uh, on the transport in September of 1942, my father's mother, father and one sister, were taken from the wood ghetto and murdered on arrival in Auschwitz. So I imagine that one sister would not leave her parents. She just wanted to go with them. One sister, though, is listed in the ghetto's hospital record that she died of starvation. Now, did, did um, Rumkowski think he could do what Schindler pulled off? You know, Schindler was a German and Rumkowski was a Jew. So I don't think he had a chance. Can you tell us about Adam Cerniakov? What does your book reveal about him? Um, what insights regarding his legacy does your book share? Right. So, so my mother's neighborhood, all the streets that she writes about from the interwar period uh, became the Warsaw Ghetto. So it was enclosed and movement from the outside to the inside was sealed off. And Jews from uh, all around uh, were forced in. The population exploded to some 400,000. Typhus, starvation, random killing claimed uh, some over 100,000 even before the Nazis began massive deportations from the ghetto Umschplatz to the Treblinka death camp. Um, before I, uh, so, uh, just uh, for the record, uh, the Red Cross uh, came here. They observed some 300 Jews dying daily inside the Warsaw Ghetto. It was, I guess, okay with them. Adam Chernyakov, he was put in charge of the Warsaw Ghetto uh, by the Nazis. He commits suicide. He would not sign the Grand Action. This is the paper for the mass deportations. Um, to put um, some perspective, so this, in the summer of 1942, 300,000 Jews were deported from the Warsaw Ghetto and murdered in Treblinka. And this represents the greatest slaughter in a single city in human history. This is a loss of life greater than Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. And the Treblinka extermination camp was very close to Warsaw, was hidden in a forest outside of Warsaw and operated for one year only because it was destroyed by Jews on the inside with the help from Jews on the outside. And Treblinka um, um, killed something like within that one year, something like 200 Jews an hour. Now, as for my mother family, everyone that stayed in Warsaw 
is unaccounted for. To this day, we have no idea if they were murdered in the ghetto or in Treblinka. So they disappeared as if they never even existed. Can you tell us about Abram Abusit, your father? Can you describe him in more detail? Um, okay, so my father was the sole survivor in his family. He um, he came back, I mean, he survived with my mother. They met uh, in Saratov, Russia. They survived together throughout Uzbekistan, returned to Poland. He was not allowed to uh, live in Wuj ever again. He, he fought desperately to try to regain his, his um, parents' properties. He did not talk at all. He kind of became silent after the war. I don't know, as he tried to maybe not to, um, I don't think it was to forget, but maybe not to uh, share with us the torment he was going through. But also in 1951, he was given a death sentence. And which, you know, now again, remember, I I, I have no, I do not understand any of this. Um, he was diagnosed, so he was in Soviet Russia, he was um, sick with uh, pneumonias, but there was no antibiotic. So the only thing he was ever given was hot tea and maybe an aspirin. By the time he came back to Poland, he he was contagious. He had tuberculosis. Um, in America, by 19, maybe 1954, somewhere there, very early in um, the last uh, tuberculosis sanatorium was closed because there was a cure. There was an antibiotic cure for tuberculosis. In Poland, we had nothing. Um, so my father would spend his time divided between trying um, to go to, to his city of Łódź, trying to fight for his property and between uh, sanatoriums. Um, and I think he... He was humiliated. He was um, the death sentence that he knew was hanging over his shoulder. He lived for the next 10 years, um, and we saw him in and out constantly. But I think he, his frustration, he kind of took out on us. Um, and um, we, we kind of waited for him to die. I didn't, of course, I didn't know that. But he never uttered, uttered a word uh, about his uh, guilt. And he didn't quite connect to the family he created. Can you tell us about Barry Letterman, your husband? What do you admire about him? What do you report about him in this book? Well, he really has his own story to tell. He... Um, he definitely championed for me. Uh, on the day my mother died, I pulled out her journals, the pages that she wrote on, and I kind of disappeared for the next what, nine years, 10 years. And he, he was my biggest cheerleader in my corner. And I think the reason he did that, 
because he has a very similar story as mine. His uh, mother and her family survived pretty well in Soviet Russia. Uh, and But his father was a sole survivor like my father. His father came from Kovil, uh, which is Ukraine, and everyone was murdered except for his father. So without his support, you know, I... I couldn't do it. And without my daughter's support, they also were my biggest support. What does the title of your book mean? Why did you select it? Um, you know, so for us, um, there is not one photograph that survived the war. And my mother actually says how, um, how when she says goodbye to each of her siblings. So she, she flees Poland with one sister, one brother and her, and three of her friends. So the ones that she flees uh, Poland to go east are, all of them are unmarried and have no children. All her married uh, siblings with children stay behind. So she describes how she gives all of her precious possessions to her brother, Adek, her diplomas, because she, she starts educating herself later. Her favorite books and all of her photographs are left behind in Warsaw. So for our family, um, are, there's absolutely no photographs. Uh, I have no idea how anybody looked. So for me, um, memory, you know, it, it, it's, it's everything is, our, is in our memory. There is no other um, evidence. It's mm -hmm. memory is is what we have. Um, the only thing that actually we do have, and that is about Sevek, he was uh, like I mentioned before, he was a ladies' purse designer, and he um, there was there's one purse that somehow my mother kept because uh, he must have brought some of it with him. And um, and she saved a, one purse that to this day I actually have it that uh, he made in Warsaw, Poland. And it's the only thing I have as a record of his existence. What was life like in the village of Guzari? Um, well, Guzari was a very uh, a deserted village. Um, this was a place where uh, the the army in, in exile was uh, being trained, and my father actually. So when they left uh, Saratov, they left with the Polish army, forming on Russian soil, and they that's where they were going. They were going to be trained here. So my father was actually a recruit. And but at the end, he did not pass the medical evaluation. So Guzari was just a deserted village with the uh, soldiers passing through. Uh, and uh, they lived on an open field with the only thing to cover them was like a, a thin blanket. Uh, the weather here was very hot in the daytime and very, very cold. Uh, at night, and um, as soon as my father was dismissed from the army, uh, the access to army food uh, evaporated for them, and 
typhus, dysentery, malaria, eye disease was widespread here. So they were they were they were desperate after that. What were relations like between Jews and Christians in Uzbekistan? Um, you know, for the most part, um, for the most part, they were uh, they were they were good. I think it was um, those in charge were so um, in Uzbekistan. Those in charge were those that were brought here from inside of Russia. Those the managers were all Russians. Uh, the workers were refugees like my parents and Uzbeks. Um, for the most part, I think they got along, but of course there was resentments on all parts. Um, there's an incident where uh, my father was attacked uh, by a Polish um, uh, vet, a veteran. Um, but, uh, you know, I think this is kind of very, um, um, for the most part, it was it was okay. I think it's like in any other situation, you'll find uh, people survived and helped each other. But I think uh, there were, you always find those who will be resentful. What were marketplaces like in Guzari? Um, in Guzari, um, you had... Um, Mostly it was trading with the Uzbeks and trading with the soldiers. Now the um, um, the um, so the the um, the trading was for the most part illegal. The soldiers would be uh, give selling. Okay, the soldiers wanted to buy cigarettes. Uh, vodka, which was, you know, all that was kind of illegal, and they would be giving them or selling to them things that that was of excess. Uh, they would be selling them some of the uh, canned goods, uh, some of the um, soldiers would be selling them some of the army surplus, and that was definitely illegal. So when on one end you had the police uh, making sure none of that was happening. All of the illegal um, exchanges were happening on the other end of the, of the train station. Um, and then uh, all that was then being exchanged with the Uzbeks. How did your mother cope and survive when she was inflicted with malaria? Can you comment on this episode? How did she get through it? Well, so she first uh, contracted um, malaria and Guzari. So Guzari was, uh, uh, to get water, they had to go to the river's edge. uh, And the the water was as thick as clay. They would have to wait also a few days for the clay to subside to the bottom. And the area that the area was uh, covered by mosquitoes, so they they had no way of protecting themselves. She was um, she she had very high fever. She couldn't stand on her uh, stand upright. She would um, she w- was able to get uh, the quinine pills. She she said she even had trouble swallowing the pills. Um, 
she, um, at that time, she was not in the hospital, but uh, she um, she turned her skin turned yellow, and her um, hair would fall out in uh, in chunks, um, and this would um, the fever and her symptoms would come and go. Eventually, she was hospitalized, I believe, in Karshi. So in Guzari and Gitapu, they did not stay um, too many months. Eventually, they ended up in Karshi, and that's when she ended up in a hospital. Now, the hospital was um, um, overflowing with sick people, and there were also not enough doctors and nurses because they were all uh, mobilized. Uh, my mother wrote how in the um, in the hospital I um, was crawling with um, um, oh uh, what's the the bugs uh, lice with lice, but uh, and they put her on a ward uh-huh. with typhoid, and she was uh, and she knew she had. Um, you know, she didn't have typhoid. Eventually, they, they put her in the right place. But she was, I think what was the most scary part for her was that this was the first time that she had time to think and she would be thinking about her family more so. She was thinking about Sevek, who, um, you know, he was, um, first he was um, sent to the Gulag by the arrested and sent to the Gulag by the NKVD, and then he was released and sent to, to the front. So he she kind of had a feeling that he was no longer alive, but then she also thought about my father. So they were not married. They were a couple. Uh, and she was worried that he will abandon her. So many men and women did, because there were more men than women. So many men did this to to their partners. They would abandon them in, in in times of troubles and just move on. She thought that he would also abandon her and leave her. And she was um, so. This is the the nightmares, the day nightmares that I would say that she was having. How was your mother impacted by her hospitalization? Was she traumatized? Well, that was that. That's what was traumatizing her. That she uh, that she she will be abandoned. Uh, at one point, she tried to get into a hospital that was um, um, it was um, only for the train workers. At that time, my father worked for I think he worked at that time for either the wine factory or the tractor factory, and they wouldn't take her. She. She was sitting on the ground and she couldn't stand and they would not take her. She, that was at the tractor factory because she, she had to go home. And my father finally, uh, they, they, because it was far away, the, the city hospital was far away. They put her on a tractor the next day and drove her to the hospital. So there was that, that kind of trauma that they were, um, they were, uh, they wouldn't bend, you know, there, there was no bending uh, of roles. Can you tell us about the social and physical geography of Gitapu? So this was um, this was an area between two major rivers, and this was a very fertile river. And 
this is Stalin after um, during the second revolution, Stalin uh, took this area and he brought here the uh, the managers in um, the Russian managers and they turned this area into those huge fields where uh, they grew here um, cotton. Cotton was uh, for Russia was uh, or was called their um, uh, white gold, and they collected this uh, this cotton to ship to all over Russia, and other things uh, grew here very well too, like tea, uh, wheat, um, and fruits and vegetables grew here very well because the area was so fertile. Um, now the Russian people who came here, the managers. So those were called collectives or kolhozy. Um, they lived in very nice uh, homes. And my mother writes about that too, how it, she would walk around here and how envious she would be because they, the homes were surrounded by beautiful vegetation and beautiful flowers. Can you tell us about life in Karsi? What was it like culturally and demographically? So Karsi was a, a big town, a big, bigger city. And um, my mother, um, um, she, um, so my father worked for a tractor company. They were making uh, tractor parts. This is the first time since leaving, uh, since leaving Saratov that in their room, they slept on a kind of a makeshift bed. Um, so there were wooden planks and um, the legs uh, would, were made of tractor parts. My mother had a few jobs here. Um, she, uh, one of the jobs she had was a night guard. She, at night, she would have to walk around with the, uh, guarding against the outside she had to carry a gun but uh the the manager of the guards would always find her sleeping on the job so he wanted to fire her another job my mother had here was cleaning parts with paraffin and she could never get the smell from her hands and she would you know, as little food that she had, she would make her God. So anyway, in the end, she quit that job so that she could participate in the illegal black market, which brought them more money. And and she could eat more because they were always hungry. Um, the culturally, the, the you know, you had the Russians, you had people like my mother, the refugees, and you had the Uzbeks who are uh, Muslims. They are Turkic. It's the the ethnic group. That those are North Eastern North Eastern Asians. Um, what role do the emotions of anger, rage, and fury play in this memoir? Um, <laughs> anger and fury. Mm. Well, I think at the beginning, you know, when I understood less, um, I think it was understanding more is how my anger and fury uh, changed 
different. I think those emotions change differently. I think um, understanding um, my parents better um, changed how I saw them differently. Um, you know, on, on the one level, um, first I saw them as maybe helpless, beaten by the war, unable to or unwilling to recover from their trauma. But I think, uh, but I think later I understood that uh, it was impossible to recover from such a heartbreak. And uh, with time, I saw them as actually rebellious, that they, uh, that they refused to, uh, uh, to join the Communist Party. That was their last shred of dignity that they were not willing to give up. Uh, they refused to be brainwashed uh, by the dangerous communist ideology. Um, and I grew, I grew in understanding that joining the Communist Party was not an option for them. And uh, many people did not join their lead. And I think um, for me, um, I think the, the rage and fury and anger is more towards the abandonment of the Jews by the world. It's now more geared towards. Can you tell us about Witold Kuletsky, Irina Sendler, and Jan Karski? Who are they and why are they significant? Uh, it's okay. So they are among the righteous people. And but just to kind of point, uh, the total righteous recognized by Yad Vashem is under three hundred thousand out of a population uh, at the time of thirty million, and they represent point zero zero one percent. But it's really important to talk about them. So Witold Pilecki, he was a Polish soldier who got himself arrested to be sent to Auschwitz. He lasted two and a half years before escaping. Um, he was able to escape because he, as a Polish uh, uh, person in Auschwitz, um, when he escaped, he was actually uh, in a, on a work detail outside the gates of Auschwitz. I, I believe, if I remember correctly, they were working on uh, building a bakery for the Germans. Um, that's how he escaped. He was among the first to set off the alarm about the mass gassing of Jews in Auschwitz. And after the war, Pilecki was murdered uh, by the communists. He was uh, marked as the enemy of Polish, uh, of Communist Poland. He was executed by the Polish Communist government. Um, and that's why this is really important to talk about him. So, you know, Auschwitz was open uh, in 1940. Uh, initially, it was uh, as a political uh, prison for, uh, for, for political prisoners. But it soon became extermination and slave labor camp. Murdered here were also Polish people, um, Romas, who traced their uh, history all the way to the 11th century India, Jehovah Witnesses, um, gays, 
priests, but 90% of those murdered here were Jews. Um, uh, Irena Sendler. She worked for an organization called Regota, and she saved uh, some uh, over 2,000 Jewish children. Uh, she smuggled them out of uh, the ghetto. She was arrested by the Gestapo, but her organization was able to pay uh, a ransom for her, so they let her go. In um, 1948, um, the Polish secret police arrested her on suspicion of treason. She was brutally questioned, um, but she lived through it. Yad Vashem honored her in 1965, um, but the Polish government would not allow her to leave for Jerusalem to receive the award in, 20, in uh, 2007, 2007, she was nominated uh, for the Nobel Peace Prize, but it instead went to Al Gore and she died a year later. Jan Karski, uh, from 1942, he provided the allies with the earliest accounts uh, I should say accurate accounts of the Holocaust. And um, he was a Polish um, a courier underground. He delivered pleas um, for the Polish Jews um, of the Warsaw Ghetto and of the Nazi death camps in Poland to FDR and to the Polish government exile and the allies. His pleas fell on deaf ears. Um, after the war, he lived in America and uh, taught for decades at Georgetown universities. Um, he has, there's a few YouTube videos available uh, with him, and he's very emotional when he talks about it. Uh, there's also another gentleman, he was a doctor who lived in uh, eastern Poland uh, that was occupied by uh, by the Germans. His name is uh, Zygmunt Klukowski. Um, he, he was a, a physician, but he also kept a secret uh, diaries. Uh, those are, again, called the first-hand accounts. And those secret journals detail um, the deaths, deportations, liquidations, the brutality, and especially of the barbaric treatment of Jews by the Germans. And his first-hand accounts I, are quoted by many historians. Who is Czeslav Milos? Can you explain the quotation for him on page 22? Sure. So Czeslav Milos um, lived in Warsaw, um, during the war and his this is so this is like a poem so let me just tell you a little bit about him first so he had to flee poland uh under communism he first came to paris and eventually ended up teaching in um in berkeley california so the the um the poem basically talks about how on some level, Polish life in Warsaw went out carefree with a beautiful spring 
clear sky morning, music playing, while inside the ghetto, the ghetto's walls, the destruction of the Jews was going on uh, on a full view and in full sound. Um, so he, that's why I used that quote for, you know, it was, everyone knew what was going on, basically. That's what he's saying. What does your book teach us about your family members' experiences in Siberia, in gulags? Can you elaborate sure. on what your book reveals? So my mother, so my mother escapes uh, to the east, um, and actually a Russian soldier saves her life. But eventually she ends up in Sarato, where she works for two years in a factory. But during this time, her brother is arrested. Now, he's arrested for something very stupid on his part. He's arrested because his girlfriend missed her mother terribly, and she wanted to... She wanted to go and be re reunited with her mother. This was illegal for her and him. Um, she wanted to go back to the Eastern territories uh, because they signed a contract to live and work for Mother Russia. And so um, my mother's brother uh, told her that he'll help her to do that. And of course, they get on a train and they immediately are arrested. And they are each sentenced to five years in, in the Gulag, uh, Siberia. And so my mother goes to the prison once she finds out where he is. And she tries to uh, beg for his freedom. But of course, uh, nothing happens. And so he's shipped off to the Gulag. Um, he survives like this for two and a half years. And then he uh, he's released. And the reason my, now he's able to write letters to my mother, but all the letters are written only in Russian and all the letters are read before they are mailed. So he can only write to her that he's well and everything is okay. Uh, he cannot write the truth. But when he's, the reason he's released because um, a Polish army is being formed on Russian soil. This is forced on Stalin when Hitler attacked Russia. So what happened is that um, Stalin didn't have anything. He didn't have any surplus. What he's doing is in exchange for all the surplus, he's letting the people from the Gulag out. And it just so happened that uh, Sevek was in that first group. He was changing trains in Sarato, and that's how my mother got to see her brother for a few for a few hours. She begged him to go into hiding, but he refused. So this is how he told her about what happened, how he survived, and my mother describes all that. She also describes how he looked. Uh, he. He looked at least 20 years older. He wore no shoes. His feet were bound by rags and where um, the rags were held together by string. And um, he, so he described how he survived. 
and just to connect this to historical facts, Alexander Shazanitsyn was sentenced to eight years in the Gulag after he criticized Stalin in a private letter. So that's to kind of go a whole circle. There's a quotation from your mother on page 22. Can you describe this quotation? Why is it noteworthy? Well, so my mother, uh, I guess my mother never thought she would be leaving Poland. Um, when the train was leaving uh, the station from our city, my mother was hysterical crying. I have never heard a cry like this before or since. And in the end, it was when my father died. We also waited in line for five years to come to America legally. Uh, her sister had had to vouch for us that we would not be a burden on the government. And um, so my mother knew she was never to return. And I think this is when she finally uh, decided to bury everything in, deep inside her. But in order to write the book, and this is what, um, and this is when Ellie Boisel comes into the picture, he told me to tell my mother that she must commit this history to memory, that uh, people have to read about it. So in order to write the book, my mother had to re-enter the world that was extremely painful to her because she had to bring back all that back to life. Not just uh, the people, but also the smells. I mean, she writes about some of the food that you can actually touch and smell and feel. Uh, all that was brought back to life. So she... In the book, uh, or in the pages, because that was before it was a book, she writes how she would have to stop and continue the next day because she was crying and the pages were, were covered with her tears. But in the end, she knew that she had to give a voice to her generation, her community and family. And as Ellie Weisel put it, uh, to quote him um, correctly, to forget the dead would be akin to killing them a second time. What does this book teach us about trauma? I think it teaches me about human natures, that it is humans that have power to choose to be good and do good things or to be evil and do evil things. Some choose to be evil. And I think those are the people that to lift themselves up, they they feel like they have to humiliate, humiliate uh, the other. Uh, so to, to feel themselves better, they, they have to hurt the other. I, I think it's, to me, it's human nature. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Can you repeat that? Sure. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your focus and time and attention have gone since finishing this book? What have you been focusing on? What have you been doing? What have you been working on since completing this book? 
Okay, so um, what I want to do is I want, I am actually, I've applied to do, uh, this would be for adult education. I wanted to put together um, a lecture uh, doing uh, um, a class on um, using my book and connecting it to history. This would be for adults, actually, um, combining um, Eastern European history uh, on the background of, of my book or vice versa, using first that first-hand account and connecting it to, to history. Um, but I also am um, kind of focusing my own um, education, if you will, on uh, something that my mother would used to say um, that I grew up with, I would say, that uh, something that I'm exploring on my own time. My mother used to say, if God had existed, Holocaust would never happen. Um, and that kind of um, always was on my mind that uh, at the same time, she, she always, um, after the war, in Poland especially, she would always kept all her traditions, uh, that the traditions that she learned, you know, in childhood from her family, even though in communist Poland, uh, this would guarantee you that you would be considered a Zionist. You know, for instance, in Poland, um, growing up in Poland, uh, if this is before the first grade, uh, our synagogue was closed and our Jewish community was closed as if overnight. Um, because the words uh, Jewish and Zionist were interchangeable. And um, so for me, it is more than, um, so I'm trying to educate myself in that area. Uh, for me, it is more than God or higher power or evolution or, so I'm trying to understand more from that, uh, from what she was, she felt, you know, about God, if God had existed, Holocaust uh, would have not happened. I feel that we as humans or individuals, uh, that we are, that God gave us choices, that we make choices to do, to be good or to be bad, to do good or do evil, that uh, that we are as individuals, that it, it is on us as individuals uh, to hold, to be held responsible for everything that we that we do. So, um, you know, so I'm exploring that part of, of I guess, of being religious or um, spiritual, I guess, spiritual. I'm focusing also on that now. As we end today, I would like to reiterate how thankful I am for your time, for your magnanimity, for your generosity, for your eloquence, and for your erudition in all the responses you provided to the questions asked and to let you know how appreciative and lucky I feel to have had this time with you today together. Well, thank you for having me. I think I, I feel very lucky to be here. I am 
I'm, I'm honored that you asked me to talk about it. And I hope that, um, um, I hope that people, uh, get something out of it. Um, my website is really well organized, so people are welcome to read more on my website. I hope that I came across as um, as clear as possible. I, it is kind of, you know, it's it's nervous to, to speak like this to people, but uh, I hope that they, they get some kind of an understanding. And thank you again from the bottom of my heart to let me do that. Thank you. I could not be more grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you. As we close today, I am your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. I have been in dialogue with Susanna Abusitz. We have been discussing her new book, Memory is Our Home, Loss and Remembering, Three Generations in Poland and Russia, 1917 to the 1960s, published in Stuttgart by Ibedim Verlag, 2020. Susanna received a MA from UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles, and did research in Poland and Israel. At the present time, she is an independent speaker talking to the community at large, including museums, libraries, churches, synagogues, and book clubs. Thank you very, very much.